0: Well, good morning again. As always, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, would you turn to Luke chapter 24? Luke 24. Throughout this past week in our evening worship services, we've been hearing from the Gospel of Luke. And we've heard about Jesus' betrayal and arrest. His trials before the chief priests and Pilate and Herod. And finally, we heard about His crucifixion and His death and His burial. In the Gospel of Luke, the last thing we've seen is Jesus dying on a cross and then His dead body being laid in a tomb. Now on this Easter morning, we come to Luke chapter 24 to see what became of the crucified Son of God. But before we hear from this wonderful passage, let's ask for God's help, that He would open our eyes and our ears to see and hear the beauty of Jesus. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know and love your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may see the risen Jesus and come to Him for life. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Luke chapter 24 beginning in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared... But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. As we look at this passage today, I want us to see three things as we work our way through. First, I want us to see the challenge of hope. Secondly, I want us to see our patient Savior. And then thirdly, I want us to see what the opening of our eyes looks like. Every character in this story seems to miss what is right in front of them. You could say that the people Luke is telling us about are dull or unintelligent. But I think the much more compelling understanding is that hope is very difficult. Hope is a challenge. You'll notice in verse 21, the two disciples are walking with Jesus, telling him the sad story of their leader being killed. And they say... We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Jesus was the one that his followers had pinned all their hopes on. They had put all their eggs in the basket of Jesus being the Messiah. All the great promises to Israel and all the despair that came with the exile and oppression and waiting. They had thought that he was the one that would fix all of that. Remember, Peter says in Mark 10, See, we have left everything and followed you. And beginning with his betrayal on Thursday and coming to a terrible conclusion with his death on Friday, all of those hopes came crashing down. But in this story today, everything that we see happening points to the renewal, the reestablishment of that hope. Everything says Jesus is back. He isn't dead. All the promises are still true. Everything will still be fixed. But all of the people in this story who have the truth of their hope right before their eyes just don't seem to latch onto it. Why not? The answer is because hope is difficult. It's challenging. It is not easy to have hope. Death and pain and suffering and evil are easy to see in the world. It is easy to latch on to those things and say that they are the most true. That they are the enduring reality. You turn on the news or you get on the internet or social media and you are met with evil and disaster and selfishness and pain. And so we've become like dogs that learn not to fall for your trick of pretending to throw the ball anymore. We are skeptical. When we hear good news, we assume there's a catch. When we are enjoying our life, we assume something bad is sure to follow. When, in the midst of pain, we hear that something might bring relief and rest and hope, we hold ourselves back from believing it. You see that in this story of these followers of Jesus. Look at the emotions Luke notes in these verses. In verse 4, the women are perplexed when they don't find Jesus' body in the tomb. They are frightened in verse 5 when the angels appeared to them. Verse 17 tells us that the two disciples walking with Jesus were sad when he asked what they were talking about. And then look at their skepticism. The angels finally get the women to understand that Jesus has risen from the dead. And they run and tell the apostles. And verse 11 says, But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. The most amazing event in the history of the world has just happened. The event that would change their lives, that would change their eternity. And they have witnesses who have seen the empty tomb and been told by angels that it has happened. And they don't have the time of day for it. They are skeptical. Because hope is difficult. But we need to also see that the hope we are talking about is concrete. We aren't talking about some abstract idea of hope. Something that's plastic and malleable that we can make mean whatever we want it to mean. It's not your own personal version of happiness. That isn't the kind of hope that the disciples had in Jesus and it isn't the kind of hope that we find in Jesus. Notice that Luke keeps coming back to the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples. In verse 5, The angels are talking to the women at the tomb, and they say, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. The hope they are talking about is the concrete promises of God. It's the very words that Jesus said to them. And what is it that he told them? He told them that he would rise from the dead. But that isn't all. He told them that he would save them from their sins. He told them that he would bring the kingdom of God to earth in full He told them that he would give them abundant life, everlasting life, fullness of joy, all living in the presence of God for eternity. That he would turn back the curse and remake both us and the world. These were the concrete promises of Jesus that they had placed their hope in. Often when people talk about hope and those who are hopeful, they give off the impression that they are gullible fanciful, that they are easily taken in by things. But every evidence that we have in the Gospels is that the people around Jesus were the opposite. The problem is not that they too easily believe his words. It's that they are slow to listen. It's that they have such little faith. Those promises of Jesus, forgiveness of sins, abundant life and joy... Restored fellowship with God. No more sin or death or sorrow. Brothers and sisters, no one in the Gospels is accused of too easily believing Jesus' promises. No one is chastised by Jesus for putting too much hope in him. Or putting too many expectations on him. They are chastised for too little faith. Too little hope. For expecting the fulfillment of their petty and weak dreams, not the fulfillment of his world altering promises. But can you blame them? Think for a minute about what they saw. What they saw didn't seem world altering, it didn't seem like they were staring at the reality changing Son of God. Isaiah said that there was nothing special about Jesus if you looked at Him. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. He just seemed like any other man. He performed miracles and made claims that He was Almighty God come in the flesh. He attracted huge crowds, but He also withdrew from the crowds. He kept a small group of people around him. And just when it seemed like he was finally going to show that he was king, he was arrested. He was mocked and beaten. And then he died the death of a criminal, breathing his last while he hung on a cross. Who can blame the disciples for having weak hope? It was hard to see who Jesus really was. It was hard to see the credibility of his promises. When a man hung dying on a Roman cross, it was hard to see the king of the world. And so they were suspect. They were skeptical. Their skepticism felt safer than hope in this dead Messiah. And so they wouldn't be easily convinced. Does that sound at all like you? When you read the promises of God in Scripture, that God is working all things for your good, that your heavenly Father watches over you and doesn't withhold anything truly good from you, that Jesus is going to renew the world and wipe away all tears and sin and pain and death, that even you will be renewed and cleansed of your sin and half hearted love and made perfectly righteous. And happy in fellowship with God. When you hear those promises. Is it hard to believe them when you look around you? Is it hard to believe that you have the spirit of God living in you when you yell at your kids? Is it hard to believe your father is watching over you when you hear bad news again? Is it hard to believe that Jesus rules and reigns over this world when another evil tragedy is on the news? Is it easier to keep your hopes small and close to the chest? Brothers and sisters, there is one answer, one solution to our weak and small hopes. There is one remedy to our faint and flickering hope, and it is the risen and living Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of our refusal to be comforted, our skepticism at the promises of God, right in the middle of our sinful temptation to assume it is all too good to be true, Jesus comes to us and he patiently, oh so patiently, fans our hope into flame. The first section here ends with Peter running to the tomb and seeing it empty and then coming back home and marveling at what he had seen. And then in verse 13, we get this odd story. Two of Jesus' followers are taking a walk from one town to another, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which is about a seven-mile walk. And while they're on their walk, a man comes up and starts walking along with them. But they don't recognize him. Their eyes are still veiled. And he starts asking them what it is that they're talking about. And this is where their sadness sets in and becomes evident. They can't believe this man doesn't know the news of the town for the past three days. And the conversation that they have with him is laughable at points. They're telling him about who Jesus was and what he had done. And they say that he is the one they had hoped would redeem Israel. And then just to show how really dense they were. In verse 21, they say, yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. They are literally summarizing the story to Jesus exactly how he told them it would happen, even down to the prediction that he would rise on the third day. And then they start saying how the women told them about the empty tomb and how some of the disciples had seen it. But they obviously still don't believe it's true because they are sad telling him about this. They are speaking of Jesus in the past tense here. They are talking about what they had hoped he would do. And it's at this point that Jesus says in verses 25 and twenty-six, 26, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. He's finally calling them out for their weak faith, for how slow they have been to realize and believe all that was happening. And it's right now that you'd expect him to just rip into them. How could you be so clueless? Weren't you paying attention? Didn't you trust me when I told you all these things were going to happen? How many times do I have to tell you? And that may have been what you expected. That may be how you have learned to think about Jesus. Exasperated and frustrated with you. Annoyed at how clueless everyone around him is. Maybe that's how the people who taught you about Jesus acted toward you. Or maybe that's just what you assumed in your own reading of the Gospels. And that's how you assume he is toward you. Annoyed at your slowness to get it exasperated and frustrated and ready to be done with you already. But instead, Jesus walks calmly and patiently alongside these two weak of faith disciples. He doesn't rip into them. He doesn't chastise them. He does a Bible study with them. Verse 27 says, "...and beginning with Moses and all the prophets," He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Oh, to be a fly on the wall in that conversation. There are so many things we could explore about what Jesus is teaching them and what that means for how we read the Old Testament and what it is that Jesus came to do. But what I want you to see right now is the amazing patience of Jesus the walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus would have probably been about two hours. We don't know how much of that it would have taken to walk these two people through the whole Old Testament and show them that it was all about Jesus. But if you've ever read through Leviticus, you know that that was not a short Bible study. (laughs) On the first day that he rises from the dead, the day that he changed the world forever, the day that he trampled over death, the very day that he brings the new age, the new creation out of the grave and into existence, Jesus does a two-hour Bible study with these two disbelieving disciples. Jesus is patient with their faint hopes. He is patient with their lack of faith. He is enduring and forbearing with them. He doesn't give up on them. He perseveres in teaching them about himself and slowly but surely strengthening their understanding and their faith and their hope in him. Do you know that this is how Jesus deals with you? He is not shocked and surprised that your faith is weak. He is not exasperated that what you sang joyfully about on Sunday is hard for you to trust in by Wednesday. Hebrews 4 and 5 say that that this is one of the reasons we should be comforted that Jesus became a human. Speaking of Jesus, the author says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Beloved, Jesus is patient toward you. He deals gently with the ignorant and the wayward. And then we see the payoff. Amazingly, their eyes still aren't opened yet. Even when he's walking them through the scriptures, telling them about himself. They make it all the way to Emmaus and Jesus acts like he's going to keep going. But they urged him to stay with them and so he did. And sat down at a table with them to eat. And verse 30 says, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Their eyes were opened. They've been slow to understand, hazy-eyed this whole time. Their sadness and despair have shaken their hope. But as Jesus sits down with them over a meal, blesses the bread and breaks it, their eyes are suddenly opened. Some commentators look at this and say that it is simply a meal that they are having with him. And maybe that's so. But there is no way that this is not pointing to the Lord's Supper the whole problem these disciples have is that they can't understand how the crucified one can be the one who will redeem Israel. They can't understand how the Messiah, who was supposed to win victory, can be the one who suffers. This is what Jesus taught them in their Bible study, that the Christ, the Messiah, must suffer before He comes to glory. And it is when Jesus breaks the bread, That everything becomes clear. In the Lord's Supper, the breaking of the bread is a sign of Jesus' broken body. Broken for you. Broken to forgive the sins of His people. This is how the suffering Messiah is the Redeemer. He saves us by giving Himself. This is what clicked for them. This was their aha moment. This is when, just like the women at the tomb, they remembered What he had said to them. You see, the resurrection isn't just the undoing of Jesus' death, it is the vindication of Jesus' death. His suffering is not undone by him coming back to life, his resurrection is the approval of his suffering. Paul says in Romans 4 that Jesus died for our sins and was raised for our justification. His resurrection is the validation of everything he did in his life, suffering, and death. Everything he said and did and promised is now proven to be true. He is the one who suffered for our sins. But he didn't just take our sins and condemnation on himself. He defeated them. He rose victorious. He didn't just endure death. He conquered death. He didn't just take on our sins. He crushed sin. The resurrection of Jesus means that death is no longer in control. Sin is no longer our slave master. This world is no longer ruled by Satan and suffering and sorrow. Instead, the living Jesus is king. Paul calls the resurrection the first fruits of the new creation. It is the beachhead. Of every promise Jesus has ever made, it is the rock-solid foundation for our hope. And these disciples got it. They got that their world had been changed. They got that their sadness and despair were finally overcome. Verse 33 says, And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed. As slow as they were to see that Jesus had risen from the dead, they were exactly that fast to realize what all of this meant. They walked and moped to Emmaus, but they jumped up at night and went back to Jerusalem at that same hour. And they went with the message, The Lord has risen indeed. Notice the importance of that word, indeed. This is real. This is not an idle tale. This is not too good to be true. It's all real. Death is undone. Sin has been defeated. Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. The curse is beginning to unravel. The pain and destruction and suffering of this world are on their way out the door. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And though Jesus' resurrection is just the beginning, it is the sure and certain promise that the end will follow suit. We live in a world where everything bad has an expiration date. Every temptation, every sinful thought, word, and deed Every sick body and oppressed mind, every goodbye you have said, every pain and sorrow and fear and sadness, all of it is on its way out the door. It doesn't mean that everything is easy right now. Hope is still difficult. Joy is still mixed with sorrow. Belief in Jesus is still mixed with doubt. Sin and death and Satan are not yet cast into the eternal abyss. But because Jesus is risen from the dead, you can be sure that all of it is indeed coming. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I am making all things new. Would you all pray with me? Father, we confess that our hope is still faint. That our faith is still weak. That we don't believe the resurrection as we ought. So we pray that you would strengthen our faith. We pray that your Holy Spirit would fan into flame our hope and trust and confidence that Jesus has conquered death and sin in the grave. We pray that we would walk in light of what he has done and that we would look always to King Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.